Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore, uh, you know, you heard the intro, you know what it's about. Uh, I'm writing some books, and uh, now we're doing a critics collab. This is our second one. And uh, joining me today is Christian Ubius. Say hello to the people, Christian. I'm saying hello. I'm saying hello to all of the wonderful people out there. Uh, so many wonderful people. You know, I bet there are some really terrible people who listen to this podcast. And Probably. I would not wish them well. Actually, I would wish them well. Uh, I would, like, I'll, I'll still say way. hello to them. Yes, that's true. Christian, why don't uh, you explain uh, where we met and uh, the project that you're working on? We, we met through Zoom, I guess mm. is the appropriate title because you were, you are a friend of a good friend of mine, Scott Lentz, mm-hmm. and uh, you listened to our own podcast, the Cinema Drip podcast, where we review movies and we brought you on to discuss Princess Mononoke. And so my first time in meeting you was also us getting into a discussion on the different assets of Princess Mononoke, which is honestly not a bad way to meet someone. Um, but yeah, so you're a co-host on that podcast um, and you do some writing of your own. I do some writing of my own. Yes. A lot of different things, a couple plays, a short film that I'm hoping to start and I guess um biggest completed project is a film that is about to premiere soon actually cool cool is there any way uh that people can find that film not yet <laughs> all right okay we're, we're we're waiting for more information but tentative premiere is october 23rd and in somewhere online for six dollars will at that point yes fun all right well i will make sure to uh broadcast that when it comes about but um, yeah, can't wait. Uh, everything I've read by you has been fantastic, and uh, I uh, encourage people to check out the podcast that you do. So, Thank you so much. Sarah. Yeah, and thank you for joining me today. So now that we got the uh, gushing out of the way, what book did you read, and uh, what would you say is like the short synopsis of said book? All right, so the book that I read is Run Prometheus. Book two? Book two, question mark? Correct. Yes, book two. And... Uh, short synopsis i don't know okay no there is a short synopsis even though it's so incredibly basic it doesn't like a short synopsis wouldn't cover anything mm-hmm. so we're dealing with neil who is kind of hired to give an autobiography to annabelle eichner the creator of the black boxes as well as the programs run prometheus and run heracles which are overarching AI programs that basically rule the entire world. I mean, the book is so much deeper than that. But that would be <laughs> that. That's 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 your logline right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I appreciate that. That's a that's a really good first step into the book. And so, what would you say is kind of the like arc of the book? Um, what sort of storylines are going on? And you know, all right. So there are a couple of different things several different arcs going on about Neil kind of dealing with what it means to do an autobiography for someone who is so incredibly famous and yet at the same time for which so little truth quote unquote is known about uh that is truth 
itself kind of goes under its own arc, just the abstract principle of what can be known and what cannot be known. Uh, and uh, at the centerpiece, even though he is the autobiographer, uh, not the autobiographer, the biographer of Annabelle, is Annabelle's arc, which is her experience presses mortality, it seems to be, at creating this program and not creating this program more so as what does it mean to have the after effects of having created a god question mark <laughs> is kind of it because a lot of religious allegory with present here and uh, at times also asking the question is there a god within this and did is an is Annabelle the god of this, or did she create the god of the story? What were your like initial thoughts? Uh, what would you What would you say to someone uh, who was considering reading this book? To To someone who hasn't read this book and who is going to read this book, I would say, oh, it seems almost cliche having read it at this point, but don't trust anyone. Hmm. Don't trust anyone. Go into it understanding that there's such a literary thing as the unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And could you explain to the people what the unreliable narrator is? I mean, it's in the title, but. It's when a narrator kind of revises history and you get the sense of flaw that they have revised history because something they're detailing later on does not follow what they've detailed before. It goes when you have several different narrators telling conflicting stories so you don't know who to trust and end up distrusting all of them. It's when characters are admitting that they have been lying or that they could be lying. Mm hmm. And uh, that last one is what is present in this book. Hmm. Yeah. How do you think the book handled that? I think that I'm trying to find the correct way to say this. The narrators frequently told me that they were unreliable. Mm -hmm. I think that if they hadn't told me, I would have still been able to figure out that they were unreliable. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. So could have been a little more subtle. I get it. So, yeah. So you mentioned you have a few questions to throw at me. So let's hear them. And and this is this is a very I guess basic question. But why did you write this book? Besides the fact that you are writing a book a month, I'm I I think that the rest of this conversation would better flow from me knowing what why why are you telling the story of Annabelle. Yeah. So um, uh, the the whole project started off uh, with the idea of like, um, I don't know, it was sort of a Frankenstein's monster thing uh, where um, the, yeah, the, uh, you know, the person who is experiencing the novel um, creates a, a higher being or a being that is uh, different and powerful in some way and uh, comes to either regret it or have to grapple with it. Um, and I thought that that would be a, an interesting thing to focus on um, people inventing these sort of programs that uh, dictate how we live our life in their college dorm rooms. To me, that mirrors uh, Frankenstein quite a bit. And uh, the thing that, that it eventually morphed into was this idea of what does it mean to tell a story? What does it mean to sort of paint your own history when you have control over what gets made into history? Yeah, I think that, you know, like you said, the fact that there are powerful forces at play is really interesting to me because um, not that I think that, you know, history was overwritten by, you know, some cabal of whatever, but 
we definitely um, only get one side of certain arguments. We view history in a way that that was artificially constructed in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting uh, thing to do with the story is to acknowledge that most of what we get in life that we think of as nonfiction is actually fictional. Let me just start then saying a couple of things and then it'll delve into probably more questions. So yeah. my very first thing that we can't really talk about that much is that I needed this book to be longer, mm. which there are constraints in this, which I fully recognize, but I needed this book to be longer because I think that there were some very beautiful accounts of Annabelle's story that needed more mm-hmm. to them. And at times, I didn't know if that was what you were going for or not, especially because you had that one chapter where uh, Neil is basically questioning Annabelle on her ability to provide facts mm-hmm. or and, and to, to provide details. And I didn't know if that was kind of the intent as to why some accounts are just so incredibly short. But I did kind of think that knowing that she is the cornerstone of this book to get to see more of her mm-hmm. so there yeah but i i, I did want to move on from that and honestly start saying this was this was a lot of fun man this was <laughs> this was quite this was quite a bit of fun because of the way that i read novels is sometimes and maybe this is just because i've been writing screenplays for such a long time at this point well mm-hmm. not really a long time but three years that I try to visualize what it is that people are saying or like if I could put a character in their place, an actor in their place and have them say out these long monologues. And you have these long monologues, these long internal things that are quite beautiful to behold. There are a couple of lines. One that I just scrolled past was uh, it was like a termite trying to judge God's glory. Uh, several different and your characters, by the way, are quite fantastic oh here's another one i come came across if people write things down i think they hope to be quoted mm. which is which, which is really <laughs> which fantastic is, which is what is happening now so <laughs> which is what is happening now people of annabelle as well as maya slash i don't know we'll leave that alone in case people are trying yeah. to read the novel later so i won't reveal who maya is uh, that's the funny thing about trying to please people. They suspect they're being played. Even if your intentions are sincere, aiming to please ironically strikes others as manipulative and greasy. And there are so many things. I get the feeling that you are understanding specifically what tone it is that this novel has taken. And part of that is a cynical one. I think that you are a lot of this book is cynical in nature a lot of this book is kind of bitter and angry in nature and i think that you are aiming for that bitterness and you very much are hitting the nail on the head with that bitterness well that's great news yeah i really aimed in the novel to create a kind of cynicism that sort of moves on you know like yeah we can be cynical about all this stuff but we can't just stay there so i i wanted to to push on that what you're saying that to move on from that cynicism, why was cynicism something that you were going for in the first place? The unreliability of things 
tends to cause people to be very cynical. I think that the deeper you delve into what we do and don't know and the things in life that we are so certain about and so passionate about can really be taken down a couple of notches. And I think that that's something that I personally believe in. Sometimes a cynic can just tear things down, you know. Um, but I think what's more interesting is to tear things down so that you can build other things up. Would you say that there's a single character in this novel who is not cynical? I mean, we don't see uh, Annabelle's parents that much, but they seem very happy and uh, content with their lives and, you know, content not go digging for things that they might not want to find. They're happy. They. <laughs> <laughs> I And I, I love the cynicism I, and I love how especially being told in first person the cynicism was present not only in the dialogue that people were writing but in the in neil's and annabelle's just random thoughts that were coming to the surface kind of going off of that the tone of bitterness and unreliability and just kind of exasperation with life at some points very very much came to the surface and i liked it I, I liked it because from the first chapter, the second chapter, as soon as he opens that door and sees the Cardiff and will leave his name as Cardiff mm-hmm. and is able to jump into that, you never lose sight of that tone. And so, great. Like 200 more pages of that. I don't know if I would have been exhausted <laughs> with the book. At the if I had if I had read a four hundred page novel of this I I don't know how long you if you were to ever revisit this mm-hmm. and uh, wrote more for it how long it would turn out being but I don't know if by the end I would be exhausting exhausted or needing to revisit some of the different things going on I wanted to stay on that because I loved it also thought sometimes. I thought it was much more natural when the cynicism came forth through actions that the characters did mm. instead of their descriptions of where they were. Yes. Yeah. It's because when it felt like things were going overtly clever, it made me think, I don't know if I'm actually trusting you and what you're saying right now and not in the same distrust that I have naturally when I'm listening to them, but more of a, I am grateful that you are saying pleasant and nice sounding things, but what are you doing? Right. And so a little bit more action going along with those would be my, what I've noticed. You have these long, fantastic, beautiful soliloquies. I'm just not always sure where they're going. I like, I like to put speeches in their mouths because it makes a... Um, it's fun. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, and it gives a like a definite place where they say that they're coming from. You can sort of rant and rave for a while uh, about any given thing. I got those notes from a few other people when somebody is like nervous about like being in an automated car or like, you know, suddenly realizes that a lot of their assumptions are based off of, uh, you know, something that could have been fabricated. I don't know that everything that was in a speech could be put into action but i i agree that that you know speaks louder than words i suppose and uh, moving on from there i also wanted to commend you on your characters because yo they were they were they were great (laughs) they were freaking great i'm trying to think besides annabelle besides neil who were just the perfect boxing match But learning more about Maya and learning more about 
Annabelle's relationship with Kelly. Hmm. Getting into the nuances there, I really enjoyed it and how each one felt specific. Each one felt human in one way, shape, or form. And in some instances, actually, a couple of standard deviations removed from humanity. Hmm. But they understood there were a couple of standard deviations removed from humanity. So what was your inspiration for some of these characters? They all contain a little bit of, you know, people that I've been and people that I know. Um, I think uh, especially the, you know, like you said, a lot of the characters are cynical, but they're cynical in their different ways. Um, One person is a highly, uh, you know, capitalist uh, cynical and another person and so that affects the way that he dresses and acts another person is cynical about you know information and history another person is cynical about um cynicism a lot of it was informed by you know my own college experience i think everybody can relate to just being underwhelmed by uh, college experiences uh running into friction and things like that um in the process of living with people who are not your family for the first time for a lot of us. While not drawn specifically from any one person, uh, I saw a lot of different reactions to that, uh, you know, uncertainty that college brings about. One person, you know, stays locked up in their room. Another person sort of dreams about fame and glory. Because in college, one thing that happens is you put on a face that you want to present to the world. Whether that ends up being who you end up becoming is kind of a question, so... I, I just I just think that that experience for me uh, was what led to a lot of the characters. Is there a character that is your favorite in this novel? The favorite character for me to write was I would say Cardiff because he's just such a because he's just such a, a an a hole. He says a lot of things that tear down certain you know sacred cows that we millennials have. I just found that incredibly satisfying to write. Um, not because I don't believe those things. I actually, I, I think we make compromises all the time that are worthy of being uh, taken not so seriously. That was my favorite to write. I think my favorite like person, I mean, it's got to be Annabelle. Um, I think that she is trying to approach a very difficult situation with brilliance and also with uh, a level of integrity. That's really cool. And uh... I think based on that, then I can say the following, which is I would have liked to see more from Cardiff mm. because there is this it's it, it, it's so interesting what you managed to do in this novel in that you've created an entire world or e- even greater than that. Actually, you seem to have created an entire universe. You've created a god as well. But I I have the two people kind of at the center or I have the one person at the center of it Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of what her story is and some of the moments that were most interesting was when her story intersected with those around her Mm -hmm. so when she kind of the beginning where she finally when she mentioned for the first time Keith and Mel I started to get more of a sense of what world it was that she was inhabiting more so than the world in which she was creating. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of this I'm looking at and seeing this is the world that Annabelle has created, but what is the world that she's living in? Right. And I don't know if that specifically makes sense, 
But I wanted to even see what kind of house is she living in that the black boxes have absolutely no control in. Mm -hmm. And Neil was trying to get that out of her. And Mm -hmm. I like that he was trying to get that out of her because I realized I was also missing that. Yeah. Even before then, what did Neil do before he was asked to go into and speak with Annabelle, I mean, I think that in a maybe in a screenplay, you would start off right at that encounter that Neil has in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You 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 want to start where the action starts, but to get more of a sense of who Neil is, maybe stretching that out just a little bit because Neil's own history and his flashbacks are fascinating. What he knows and what he does apart from Annabelle for himself, mm-hmm. are fascinating absolutely fascinating so to jump into that discussion into what he needs to do with annabelle though great well paced because your book reads very quickly it goes from event to event to event i would have liked neil stretched out more cardiff Mm -hmm. stretched out more mel and keith stretched out more the only person i would say don't stretch out at all is maya Mm -hmm. yeah maya is and Here's honestly, here's a commendation that I hope that you don't ever, ever, ever change. The moment where Neil realizes who Maya is, that page, I think I highlighted and blocked it off. And then I put like two little exclamation points to the side because I did not see that coming. And yet it made so much sense. It was that perfect puzzle piece to put in the middle. Big fan of that. Don't change that page for anything. So this was my this is my second novel, and I was having trouble. I did not plot it out as well as I could have, and that led to me going down a lot of little rabbit trails. Um, and when I wasn't sure that those rabbit trails were going to lead forward, some of them I just abandoned. These little orphan plots uh, that you know could have gone on to be something much more. Because Neil's story is basically just getting to know um, Annabelle and getting to know like the context of his life. Whereas, uh, you know, Annabelle seems to have more of like a an arc. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how those things expand, uh, but I think that um, fleshing those characters out creates something for Annabelle and Neil to bounce off of. I think it makes their characters more dynamic by surrounding them with dynamic characters who um, have their own motives and agenda. This was very much a mental book for me in that the mentality of the characters is what takes presence over the action. Mm. And I recognize that and that I think that there was so much strength there. But I want to say it's at around the 150 page mark. Mm-hmm. So basically right there, three fourths. Yeah, it's around one page, like 152, 153 or something. At that point, I stopped highlighting. And mm-hmm. I think it was because all of your things were coming to a head. Mm. And I saw that you were tying up all of your loose ends there. In you tying up all of your loose ends, I think that you Though maybe I was left with questions, but you resolved the central purposes of who was Annabelle, why is Annabelle the way that she is, kind of what we get to see about Prometheus, different, everything that was essential for me to know, you got out of me. And I was left not necessarily caring for Annabelle, not necessarily caring for Neil, but pitying Annabelle and pitying Neil. 
I didn't feel empathy towards them. I did feel pity. And I'm not sure if that was what you wanted me to feel, but mm. it was such a strong emotion that was elicited. Yeah, and they are very uh, strong personalities, and sometimes it is uh, difficult to walk in the shoes of someone who has such a different worldview than you and I would. One thing that people tell me sometimes about my writing is that tragic backstory does not a good character make, you know? Um, and <laughs> I'm not saying that that's the case here, but uh, they there are people who, I don't know, I find a lot of joy in the tragic arc of a person's life, how it sort of inevitably leads to some end that you don't want to see happen, but it sort of feels like it has to. And I think that the fact that these characters are a little bit, I, I won't say like superhuman, but they are uh, very different than human. You have this brilliant inventor and you have um, these characters who approach their lives with such cynicism. Um, and that's not how normal human beings live our lives. You know, we go out, we have a sandwich, we, you know, enjoy a good book. And these are characters who spend their lives, you know, just like debating. It can be difficult to empathize with those kinds of people because they just have a different uh, mindset than you and I do. But yeah, I think some of the more human moments of just like cooking a steak, just remembering like a stupid romance that you had, you know. I think that those are moments that I could see more of from those characters uh, to really bring them down to our level and make them into people who have natural desires and uh, things that we experience every day uh, that affect their decision making. Sometimes, like I said, a tragic backstory can be shorthand for like, oh, you should care about this person because they might do stuff that you and I don't agree with, but they sure had a messed up childhood and so that makes it all okay. <laughs> and I don't know, that's a shortcut that I, I take a lot, especially in these shorter books. So I basically have two questions that that are just left and two final points for me then. Although I can, if you have any other questions for me, I'd be more than happy to answer them. I'll start with this one. What was the intention of the Annabelle Eichner League or kind of presenting the KOS there from the very beginning. I mean, we all feel powerless right now. You know, we all feel at the whim of uh, these tech giants and these billionaires who seem to really run the world, and everybody's just frustrated about that. As I see uh, movements, you know, arising in the world that express that frustration, sometimes they're not even really sure what they stand for. They're just really frustrated. And so, yeah, I don't know if I made it especially clear what the Annabelle Eichner League was, but just basically people who want her to give up power and to uh, democratize the black boxes and like take your hand off the wheel i suppose that's a pretty common human desire is if somebody else is running the show you feel helpless and like a player in someone else's play that's something that like neil as a narrator struggles with a lot is just being not consequential yeah i think i could have definitely made it a lot more clear what that league is about i don't actually know too much myself because i think they're <laughs> sort of uh, this amorphous thing that wants her to give up power. So, so like, I have uh, a character who makes fun of them a lot, you know, uh, in Cardiff, uh, but I also have another character, like, on the ground with the Annabelle Eichner League, and wouldn't it be interesting maybe to see his point of view 
um, and to see the goals and names and like cynicism that, you know, I just expressed on this very podcast. Yeah, I think that might be really interesting. It might be a good avenue to go down and uh, flesh out another character. Because I loved the presence of the Annibal Eichner League and the presence or like just the even the thought that the KOS was a thing outside of what they had created in that one account, especially because besides Ed, I didn't see like a major force in the real world who was going up against her. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, I thought that those three things were kind of some uh, grounding stick. I don't know, grounding things for me in in that I did find it slightly difficult to believe that someone who had come to her power wasn't really concerned about her enemies. So to understand that there was this league that maybe had this whole kind of thing against her or for her, who knows, made her much more believable and even then made me want to know more about them. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Wouldn't it be interesting to like, you know, I because I and this is going to be a common theme of these critique uh, podcasts is just like having more ideas and being excited about it. I, I tried to sort of paint a picture of like this house has more security than anywhere else on Earth because uh, no one is more consequential to uh, the program than Annabelle. One thing that I think might be really interesting is to watch uh, the Annabelle Eichner League try and fail and try again to sort of attack Annabelle uh, while she does her Matrix thing and just sort of like dodges all their, uh, you know, attacks through uh, the intelligence that is at her disposal. So, yeah, I think that might be really interesting. And it might, again, give those characters a chance to speak for themselves and mouth their discontent. And I guess my my last question, there's a crap ton of religious metaphors, presences, allegory in this. I wanted to know if your goal was to do something besides just the what it means to play God scenario, which definitely came forth. Uh, Though I think that the first Jesus metaphor given by Maya about history was kind of perfect, kind of beautiful to just to see Annabelle repeat it later on. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. I thought that that had so much strength to it. You input several of those moments. I wanted to know again if you had a reason for inputting several of those moments. Again, you know, the the novel is all about cynicism. You know, if there's any sort of sacred cow today, it's uh, secularism. You know, this idea that like we can know everything and we can sort of observe everything and come to a conclusion about everything. That's just something that you and I go about our lives just not really questioning very much. There is a reason for that. We It's a backlash against sort of magical thinking and uh, all the sort of difficulties that come with that. The thing that those parallels uh, are sort of commenting on is that we in the modern day think like, oh, hey, it's on Wikipedia. This must be what's true. We say this in conversations all the time, but like, oh, a new study came out that like says that this, this and this only to find out, you know, 20 months later that like, oh, they can't actually replicate that study. I read somewhere that roughly half of all uh, social scientific uh, papers are non-replicable, which basically means that uh, they happened uh, in one study and a study that follows the exact same things cannot replicate it and a lot of the things that we believe as fact are not 
and and uh, we're very confident in ourselves. And I think the allegories to the religious and to the unknown, and there can be arrogance, you know, about the unknown. Arrogance uh, where you know people are like, "Oh yeah, this definitely happened," or "Oh yeah, my interpretation of the unknown is uh, the realist, and I know everything." I think that the book just rebels against that, which in the end is scientific, you know, just being able to doubt assumptions uh, until they're proven. Overall, I loved all of those allegories because I thought that you knew specifically what scene and what place in which to put them. I guess my only note on those is that similar to kind of the clever talk, I don't know, I would have liked to see what it meant for them to live out their lives action-wise as people who put these allegories forward. Yeah, it would be interesting to view the life of a person who uh, doubts a lot and who the sort of tragic flaw of Annabelle's character is that she has to be absolutely certain about one thing, even if it ends up costing her the ability to continue on. I think that that's the one action that really stands out as like, this is the action of a doubter uh, who will let that control their lives it's interesting because a lot of the characters i don't know where they stand on that central like doubt thing yeah i don't know where they come down on the idea that you just have to take a leap of faith or not some of the parallels between annabelle's account and the you know quote-unquote present day of neil's account i think there could be a lot to play around with there of like here's the life as lived by someone who just doesn't think about these things very much or here's the life of someone who thinks about these things too much how that sort of cripples you in either way so you are correct <laughs> you're always right <laughs> i know <laughs> It's, it's a curse. I know. I know it's a curse. And I, you have my pity. Um, so you mentioned the characters. You mentioned maybe seeing more action than verbosity, I suppose. What do you usually do if you run into those sorts of issues uh, in something that you're writing? Uh, you've already done it. I make them make a meal. Ah, interesting. I make them pull out their ingredients or go shopping for things that they need in order to make food. I put forth what kind of kitchen that they have and what they're using specifically to do it because you kind of get into this mindset of, okay, cool, so this is what I'm doing. And it just flows because you will naturally, I think, put forth some of their thoughts into it, but they have to eat food. Mm. And maybe it's delicious, maybe it sucks, and then they will tell me why it's delicious and sucks, and I can follow that entire activity and train of thought. I've had a few people tell me, like, I know exactly, I have a spreadsheet of, like, how each character takes their coffee. And I read a script by you that sort of uh, delves into that a little bit of, like, you know, why do they consume caffeine and how do they consume it and what does that say about them? Yeah, I could see a lot of tasks that I could give my characters, uh, especially if we're going to get into more anti-Annabelle conflict thing of like people attacking her. (laughs) I mean, in terms of what else I do for action and and, uh, verbosity, and this goes kind of into the cooking thing of like what a routine would be, and I just pick one aspect of that routine. For example, you know those cliched images of like a person staring, like they're in a shower and it's water's coming down and they're looking 
at the wall like they're supposed to like they're gonna kill it yeah. like it, like okay cool too far mm-hmm. but a person brushing their teeth is fine <laughs> as in i don't need you to hammer me over the head with cool this person's angry and they're really angry in the shower all right then but something honestly so incredibly simple as them getting ready to go to bed mm-hmm. and not as I lay there waiting for sleep to take me, I thought back to no, 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 no. Did you mm-hmm. did you put the pillows there? Do you sleep on your side? Do you sleep on your back? Did you set your alarms? Is there a gun or a knife underneath the mattress? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did you have a bottle of water next to you because you like to take drinks? That kind of idea of this is a regular person and in their silence Honestly, in their silence of just seeing them get ready to go to bed or just prepping food because they need like life doesn't stop just because you're dealing with so many existential things. That silence allows for my thoughts about everything that they've just gone through and everything they're expecting to flow into that scene. And I've, I've heard that before. I'm just not sure where of like giving a character something mundane that they do in private. So they're not like performing for anybody. I mean, they could be performing for somebody, but it's something that they do that is just something that we all do. And then deviations from that norm uh, tell you a lot about them or, you know, things that are just normal about them. So it's interesting to see Annabelle going from someone who who eats like um, peanut butter and honey on like potato chips or something uh, to someone who is like cooking up a uh, a steak with marbled bacon bacon around it. Delightful. I see those all the time in the supermarket, never buy them for myself. And uh, that is a tragedy of my own life. So um, how did the ending strike you? Did it strike you as at all satisfying or interesting? The event that happens Mm -hmm. that I won't spoil Mm -hmm. was to me a logical conclusion Mm. like a logical i see how everything led up to that point Mm -hmm. the chapter that followed and uh, the couple of chapters that came behind Mm -hmm. i didn't know if they were going with that ending Mm -hmm. thinking that you had that ending in mind from the beginning and that's that's the magic right is you can go back and rewrite the beginning to match the ending yeah i i agree um a few of those chapters surrounding the uh climactic moment are sort of just preparing for and commenting on that moment and i wonder if there could be more more satisfaction in like the the denouement of focusing on other characters and how they you know deal with things you guys did a series on ai on uh on on the cinema blend podcast um and like how does how does this ai stack up versus wally how does it stack up versus wally (laughs) I think Wally could take him. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to think. We, we dealt with three different versions of AI on Cinema Trip because I really wanted to look at kind of what are the different things. Is this an AI that is meant to be cared for? Is this an AI that has grown to the point where it's it, it's feeding its own and it, it wants to take over the entire world the mm-hmm. way that you know we've kind of been presented with AI a lot in the past? Or is this an AI that we just kind of live with? Mm. And interestingly, it yours is kind of all three mm. at different points in time. Yours is both a creation, something that could very well take over the world, and also the black boxes are something that everyone has kind of accepted as part of the world. And I was fine with it existing in all three realms, 
because the AI was not the centerpiece of the story. So I actually thought that the amount of time dedicated to a to the AI, to Prometheus, to the entire program was great because it was stacking up next to all of these characters who were telling me about the AI and whose lives were being impacted by the AI. It, it served as kind of this weird dad figure at times. I got confused sometimes as to what the AI actually does. Mm-hmm. I Not the power level. The power level, I'm like, cool. You want to <laughs> hit that power level? Sure, I'll believe that. But into how it went from the history paper it was created for to what Annabelle and Ed were doing mm-hmm. to what it came to be on her computer. Right. And then finally, if that was the same as what was existing outside of the accounts. Right. So I didn't see the natural progression of it that many times, mm. but I believed that it was like a like a robot baby kind of thing. One one thing that I could definitely improve upon is just uh, the nagging sense in the back of Neil and everyone else's mind that this computer is orchestrating events in a way that is just so beyond us that we can't even, you know, it's like the chess game. The chess master is thinking so far ahead that you and I can't even contend with them. They see the game in uh, and all its possibilities and prepare for that. And we just don't. The way that the novel is set up right now, it you see it at different stages uh, without necessarily seeing the progression. Maybe there's a moment where they think they can stop it. And maybe that was possible at some point. And in the novel, you don't really see much of that. The red die symbolism, perfect, fantastic. Wanted more about that in the end yeah. because I saw so much of that in the beginning. I kind of wish it had stretched out toward the end. I thought that the red die and the introduction of chaos theory was was truly spectacular as like the anti what this machine is. Yeah, and there was a there was a version of this book that was going to include those more as like uh you know Chekhov's gun. The die are going to play some like major role in the climax or whatever. And I could still see that happening. I think that would be a lot more satisfying than just having them as like a an intellectual idea. So you you were speaking earlier about your podcast. Um, I would love to hear your version of the plug. So Scott gave his version last week. I, I'm I'm almost certain that you would have a different take on it. So what, uh, and that's, well, okay. I'll just say that's one of the joys of the podcast is you guys have such different takes on the movies that you watch and uh, sometimes ones that I vehemently disagree with, but I love hearing the devil's advocacy. What is your pitch for the Cinema Blend podcast? The reason why people should tune in this month to Cinema Drip is because I am curating the movies once again. And as much control as we can take away from Scott, the better. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's Aaron Sorkin month. So we started off with Social Network. And this upcoming week, we're going to be doing A Few Good Men. I, I, I love focusing on writers. So last month was football month. And that was, you know, Scott's uh, oeuvre or whatever. Yes. Um, and uh, this month, you guys are going into a, a smart aleck writer who uh, has opinions on things. Dang it. And you're going to hear him. <laughs> and I think I think there is nothing more Christian than that. So I appreciate that about you. And I can't wait to listen in. I guess last thing I'll say it doesn't matter if a movie is Citizen Kane to me and has gained 100% of critic approval for the past 100 years. If I dislike the movie, I will make it known that I am not a fan. 
Yep. Yep. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a Spielberg in there that I, I really uh, disagreed <laughs> with, but I appreciated your take, uh, even it though it was wrong. It is the same Spielberg everyone has disagreed with this entire time. That's great. That's awesome. Hey, keep being, <laughs> keep being uh, challenging and controversial and I love it. And um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and giving uh, uh, your time uh, for this. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Dude, wonderful. All right. And that's the end of the podcast.